Our sermon this morning will come from Colossians chapter 4, verse 2 through verse 18. Let's now hear from the word of God together. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him, and Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Aeropolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from, the, from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray again. Father, we are grateful that you continue to speak to us and guide us and how we can pursue you as a church through your word. We pray this morning that you would open our hearts and open our minds to the understanding that you deem fit for us to grow in the likeness of your Son and as a church that has great influence in our own lives and for the world for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're coming to the very end of our time together in the book of Colossians, and I was just reminded uh, this week of how there are, such, there are such deep riches in this book that we probably wouldn't have come across, come across outside of just walking through bit by bit of this precious epistle together. Uh, if you are new to our church, the, the type of preaching that we aim to have here is what is called expositional preaching, and there's actually a definition of that maybe on the back side of your bulletin or in an insert where, where we believe that, that God in His great purposes brings to us His Word in such a way that He wants to build up and fashion and make His church much like His Son. And we should follow this Word as closely as we can, phrase by phrase, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, word by word. And I think I can speak for a lot of you where we have just been blessed by, by being told to focus on bits and pieces at a time, where we've seen the, the effects of sin, and the effects of Jesus in spite of our sin, and what that means for us as Christians. 
Well, have you ever had in your mouth soap? Oh, apparently you have, yeah. Have you ever been, have you ever had your mouth forcibly shut by a parent or by a friend because what was coming out of your mouth was something that was not supposed to come out of your mouth? Some of you have probably, are probably old enough to where this would be the case where you actually did have your mouth washed out by a bar of soap. And this physical illustration reminds us of when Jesus invades a, person life, a person's life, when he saves someone, when he makes someone his own, when he makes himself their Lord, when we have a new master, one of the most obvious ways that the gospel and grace transforms a person's life is that they are washed. And that now the actions that come out of their mouth or from their hands are not like what they were. In Colossians 3, Paul already mentions where the talk that comes out of our mouths ought to look different, where we ought to speak different, where people ought to hear different kinds of things from us. We learn in the New Testament that what comes out of the mouths is actually a reflection of what is already in your heart. So you may have said something on accident and said, I didn't really mean that. But what the Scripture says is your heart certainly did. Out of the abundance that is in our hearts, says Jesus, the mouth speaks. And in James, the author underlines the great mark of spiritual maturity in the, in the discipline of our own speech. The, the discipline of the tongue, the person who masters the tongue, is the mature Christian, he says. And in chapter 1 of Colossians, Paul wants the Colossians to be brought to spiritual maturity. And here, at the very end of this letter, we, we see that the presence or the outflow or the outworking of true spiritual maturity talking differently, walking differently, presenting yourself uniquely. So you might be tempted to breeze past the end of this letter, thinking this is where Paul just tidies up some arguments that he's placed elsewhere in the letter, and he says some nice sentiments to some friends, but in some ways he's coming to the very climax of his teaching to us. The, the very Christ who transforms life will showcase this by what comes out of the mouths of his own disciples. God's powerful grace is the most commonly, or God's powerful grace is most commonly seen by what comes out of our lips in his own people. So if you want to measure yourself spiritually, one of the things that Paul is saying is you can do this by watching your own tongue or listening to your own words. And, and what runs we see through the scriptures this morning are the different ways that we should use this tongue, the, the different outcomes of our words. And so you could look at this passage and recognize here there are priorities of the church, not only internally, but also externally for the world to understand. So there are three, I think, priorities that the church can react to from this passage. They'll, they'll know us very often by our words, and what should our speech be like? So if you're using an outline that you were given in the bulletin, I'll be walking through what I think is clear in this passage where Paul gives to us a final three priorities for the church. Now, there are different contexts for God to use our speech. And through our passage, we see those sifting themselves out. So first, look down at verse 2. It says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So what's the most important thing a church can do? 
a gathering of people, what can they do? What's the most powerful and meaningful and acceptable thing we can do as a body? Well, first, we can pray. We can be a people who are devoted to prayer. We see that in verse 2 through 4. You see, if this is the truth, one of the things that Paul is outlining for us is that spiritual maturity is a long and slow pilgrimage in everyone's life. Most of us, being bound to this journey, seeing it as long as it is, we might often see ourselves as mere infants when it comes to prayer. I'm astonished at how many times I'll ask someone to pray, whether in a small group setting or in a Sunday school class or just at dinner, and you see this fear, not because of stage fright, not because of they don't like to talk in front of other people, but this outcome that they finally say, I don't know what to say. And fundamentally, says the apostle, the most fundamental thing the Colossians ought to have learned to do is how to speak to God. That's what prayer really is. It's speaking to God. When someone is born again into the family of God, one of the the first things that they learn to do or one of the marks that they first give off as their announcement as a Christian is they pray. Like a baby who cries. Of course babies cry. Of course they're loud. They're babies. Like a Christian who speaks. Of course they pray. And prayer is an easy thing to understand of what to do. What do we pray? Well, who do we pray to? And what makes up our prayers? We pray to God, understanding God through His Word, and we pray about the things that we should either put off or put on. Churches with higher liturgy than ours teach this regularly, where they have formal places of confession or affirmation or thanksgiving or even supplication, where confessions are not only good things to do, but also they are wise things to understand of why we're confessing. Praises are not only necessary, but nurturing to Christians. Thanksgivings Thanking the Lord practically for what He's done in our lives is not only affirming to Him, but is also arresting to our own pride. And supplications or requests are not only authentic, where we just go to the Lord and say, I need your help in this way, but it's also an aim to align our desire and our allegiances to Him. God, don't have me lose this job. God, keep me from this addicting pattern. God, don't take my baby away. But if it be your will, may I wrap myself in the comfort of your sovereign love that is doing all things for the good of your people and glory of your name. James Montgomery wrote a hymn where people sing, it's the Christian's native breath. That's prayer. We see this all over the book of Acts. And in the early church, where God works mightily through the prayers of the church, when the apostles would find themselves in despair or under difficult times, they would say, we will first give ourselves to prayer. So Paul is summoning these Christians to get first things first when it comes to their prayer lives. And here, our own passage, he doesn't just give them a command. That is very much clear in our passage. He says to diligently pray or be steadfast in prayer. That's this imperative for us to hone in on that we should pray. But he also gives us simple instructions and also a disposition of how we should pray. So what he's doing here is he's giving us a verb that we're supposed to follow. 
follow. We're to pray. But also he gives us other words that help us understand how we should pray. So first he tells us or gives us a manner in which we ought to pray. He tells us to be steadfast in our prayer or to be diligent in our prayer, that we should persevere in our prayer. Two of my closest friends are Korean, and they're fully formed by the culture of Korea. And, and probably because I love them both so much that I just keep asking them questions about it, what it's like to be a Korean person in a very American culture. I just want to hear about where they've come from. I just want to understand different things about who they are. But one of the things that is so unique about the Korean Christian culture is they are so caught up in a long prayer and loud prayer and consistent prayer. Because the Korean culture is so different than ours, we see how this is such a contrast to our own lives. They pray for hours, openly, every day. New to Albuquerque a couple of years ago, I was nervous before my first sermon at a new church. And one of my closest friends kind of jokingly told me that in, but he was also pretty serious about it. He's like, well, if you're dreading this and if you're nervous, I would just encourage you to Google Korean Baptist Church and find the closest one and show up at 4.30 the next morning and there will be people there praying and they'll pray for you on a Thursday. And this isn't because they're early risers. Many Eastern cultures fundamentally see themselves as pieces of a group rather than independent partners. Whereas you and I could say that the U.S. culture is, is self-determining or unrestricted. This, this idea of we're going to advance ourselves, this ideal of me, myself, and I, this Korean culture sees itself as so intertwined or so locked together that they are consumed with the sharing of joy and sorrow from other brothers and sisters. If they see you overburdened, they want to take that burden from you. And they do this through prayer. Some of you know that Brooke works two days a week in Oklahoma City. So on Thanksgiving week, uh, I drove down with her and was just going to spend the day in Oklahoma City while she was at work. And so Brooke starts work at 6.30 in the morning in Oklahoma City. So we got up very early for me. She does it every week, but it was very early for me. And the best way to get to Oklahoma City is just to go straight down Highway 81. And as you know, when you go down Highway 81, you pass by Vance Air Force Base. But right before you pass by Vance Air Force Base, you pass by a Korean church. And we drove by that church at 4.30 in the morning. And what do you know? All the lights were on. And there were seven cars in the parking lot. People were in there praying. They were steadfast. They were diligent. They were overcome with the sharing and the wandering of the burdens of what it's like to follow Jesus, and they were praying for one another. So this is the manner of which we are called to pray. We're to be diligent. We're to be steadfast. But also our text says that we should be watchful in our prayers. We should be watchful in our prayers. Now, now this might seem peculiar because we've all been told from a young age that to pray, you need to close your eyes and bow your head. So how can you be watching people if your eyes are closed and your head is down? In the early church, many parents would name their sons Gregory, and Gregory means watchful. They wanted their kids to live watchful lives as they prayed, as they grew up in the faith. They wanted their kids to be on guard and to know and to see God's reach in their lives, to be looking forward to the return of Jesus, to understand the needs of the church, to understand how and who they can pray for. 
And being watchful is a biblical pattern we see in our scriptures. Adam, at the beginning, was given three specific roles. And through these roles, he was to be watchful in subduing the earth, looking for what is intruding in order to cast it out. Or or looking for what is combating against the word of God and not listen to it. Or to be watchful for his own wife when a snake starts talking to her. Now in Matthew 10, just keeping on the theme of being watchful and in snakes, trying to combine these two. In Matthew 10, Jesus actually says to his disciples that he's going to send them out and tell them to be wise as serpents. Now I don't know about you, but I don't do well with snakes. I don't go to that part of the zoo. In those movies, I just close my eyes when a snake comes on the screen. I remember growing up where we were walking uh, down the road and my dad saw a snake and he found somehow a spike and he stabbed the snake with a spike. Not my forte. I would rather just make the walk short and turn around. But Jesus is calling us to be wise as serpents, which is peculiar, except snakes never close their eyes. Isn't that fascinating? They're they're always able to see what's around them or to know and to feel what's around them. Now, the personality of our text is not to know or to feel in fear of what's around us, but to know the person who's next to you and how you can pray for them. To understand what your church body is going through and how you can lift that up as a precious incense to the Lord, our scriptures say. He wants us to be watchful in our prayers for God to bring our verbal offerings of what's happening to us and around us where the needs and the desires of our church and the nobility and necessity of the world needing to know and understand the gospel is right on our lips. So Paul wants us to pray. He commands us to pray and he shows us how we can pray. We can be diligent in our prayers. We can be watchful in our prayers, but then not to leave us high and dry. He also tells us what we should pray for. Here we see that in verse 3 and in verse 4 of our text, he shows us clearly what we're to pray for by having these words that say that that God may open to us a door for the word, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Here we see that Paul not only wants these saints to speak to God, but he tells them what they ought to speak for and what a sweet reminder these things are for us. What are we to diligently pray for as a church? That God may open to us a door for the word. What a phrase. What an illustration. He he speaks about God opening doors for the gospel to be preached. He's telling us, what the key is for opening these doors. The key is the prayer of the saints. He's telling us how we can call out to God for the building up and for the sake of the church that doors would be opened. The the key that opens doors for the sharing of the gospel is prayer. And if you think back on the previous week in your own life, you may wonder about why you didn't share the gospel with that one person or why no one ever presented themselves for you to share the gospel to them. And I'm willing to bet that 99% of the time it's because you didn't ask him to. He didn't answer a prayer that wasn't given to him. Beloved, this is a timely word for you and for me, isn't it? We may tend to think about 
our church in view of numbers, what's going up or what's going down, or programs about what is new or what is old or what's fun or what nah, didn't really work so well. Or we think about people, maybe who is left or who has returned or money uh, that's going up or going down. But what about the prayers, answered or not? Can we evaluate our pursuit with this in mind? If we can list all the things that we are praying for on one side and then see the glorious answers of our Father on the other, what a way to evaluate a year in our Lord. If you think back, beloved, you and I may want to be a popular church, a well-led church, a Bible-centered church, a fun church, a young or child-filled church, a beautiful church, But may we first be concerned with being a prayer church. May we pray that God will open unexpected doors for friends, for relatives, for neighbors. And the Lord promises what he will do when we pray those things, doesn't he? But another thing that Paul told them to pray for is for the gospel to be clear. Open doors and gospel clarity. That's the second that that he's asking for there, that that he would be clear with the gospel. When he speaks about the open manifestation of the truth, people need to know the simple, clear truth of Jesus. Paul even says that he turned away from speaking eloquently or preaching eloquently because he realized that people can be mesmerized by really fancy words instead of being mesmerized by a majestic Savior. Charles Spurgeon says that the Lord never told us to preach to giraffes who have their heads high in the sky, but preach to sheep who are in the midst of danger and fear. More than anything, the word that goes out should be clear, precise, and true. And even if it means trouble. Now you have to remember who Paul is in this scenario. This man is writing this letter to this church from jail. And he tells these people to pray for him and his work. And he tells them to pray for the advancement of the church. But notice what he doesn't pray for. He doesn't pray that he would be let free from jail. Or that his chains would be loosened in such a way. But he prays that doors would be open. And that the gospel would be clear from this prison cell. It's why we think that the Philippian letter was actually written after the book or after the Colossian letter. Because one of the reasons that people believe he wrote the letter of Philippians after the letter of Colossians is because he then later wrote in Philippians, I want you to know that the whole criterion guard has been hearing the gospel because I have been here in prison. So no matter our circumstances... Paul wants us as a church diligently and watchfully pray that doors would be opened and the gospel would be clear. You may wonder why you have so many why you have so many kids at home but no friends outside of the home. Is this where the gospel needs to be clear and for the doors to be open? You may wonder why you've been at that same desk, at that same office for a long time, and you are just fighting daily the battle of discontentment, or in the same classroom, or in the same neighborhood, or on the same farm that no one knows where you are. Are we praying for the doors to be open and for the precise and clear transformative gospel to go through? This has been 
earth-shattering for me to even think about of, of what I do on a daily basis, who I talk to on a daily basis, what I do when I open up the Word and I pray the things to the Lord. He wants them to pray for open doors and gospel clarity. So Paul requests that these Christians pray with diligence and with watchfulness for open doors and clarity. And may this be our priority as well. If a church is changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, they should first be devoted to prayer. But then second, here we see in our passage that that we should be devoted to proclamation. So first, we're to be devoted to prayer. We should also be devoted to proclamation. Paul turns to the responsibilities of these believers and their outside witness. If the first one is, is the internal transforming of their hearts that they should walk or act in a different way, now we're seeing where they can go forward with this amongst others. First, they testified inwardly through prayer of who Jesus is, and now the church should also focus on and focus towards those around them. This is a two-part section where we're outsiders. Paul is talking about non-Christians in our own lives, people who reject Jesus, people who don't know Jesus, people who don't follow Jesus, and they should walk wisely towards them and speak with grace. And the reason for this is to be walking and talking in a certain way that they are able to be helpful with the things of Christ towards those other people. They're to be placing themselves in such a position where their reputation goes before them so that when they speak the gospel, they are heard only the gospel. They're to follow Paul's example of going towards outsiders, speaking truth, and be willing to graciously defend the truth. So he says, first, walk in wisdom. He wanted this church's tongue towards the world to be lived out by their conduct. His understanding is that their knowledge of the true gospel would lead them to right thinking about the gospel and then lead them to an acceptable or an accepting understanding of who Jesus is or a response to the gospel. So he wants them, just to repeat that, he wants them to understand and have a knowledge of the true gospel that would lead to a right thinking of the gospel that would lead to a response from the gospel. And he tells them to walk in wisdom. And a walk in wisdom is is another way of saying to live your life towards outsiders that centers on Christ in whom all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. And this is for the sake of outsiders, not just for the edification of our own souls being built up in holiness, but for the sake of outsiders knowing and hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now keep in mind, this isn't meaning to say that you should walk and people will somehow find out about Jesus by just you living a certain way. But by your walk, you'll give credibility to your proclamation, to the good news that you share. A famous pastor in the late 1800s who pastored very large churches in Atlanta and then later New York City was a strong communicator, a good preacher, and a good winner of souls. And so an enemy in town hired a private investigator to follow that pastor around. He was going to find out ways, this was a publisher in town, he was going to find out ways where that pastor would slip up or where he might go places he shouldn't go or he might talk about things that he shouldn't talk about. And what happened was that person who was following this pastor around actually came to an understanding of the gospel by listening to him preach on Sundays but then following him around throughout the rest of the week and realizing that his walk, is actually a reflection of his talk. And as a result, he came to know the Lord Jesus, and he then in turn shared the gospel with that publisher himself. 
And that man became a Christian as well by the walk and the talk that honors the Lord and proclaims the good news. This is how the church should function towards outsiders. Our identity is different. Now, our aim isn't to be weird, but our identity is already different, and so we should walk wisely and in such a way that we communicate the gospel with our steps. Being devoted to proclamation, this is carried out by walking in wisdom, and second here in this section, by speaking graciously towards outsiders. So walk in wisdom, but also speak graciously. This is the result of walking in wisdom. This is why we're devoted to proclamation. Our tongue, our speech should be of the same melody, of the same mercy that's been given to us in Christ. Now, Paul previously instructs us that whatever we do, word or deed, do everything in Jesus' name. We should extend ourselves towards outsiders in love and we're to be gracious by what we say to them. Now, Paul is urging believers to extend the work of this word through the power of divine grace. Walking in wisdom was for proclamation. Speaking with grace is for proclamation. And grace is the powerful act of God among his people, where God in his glory came down to man. While we sing the truths earlier this morning, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, laid in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hailed the incarnate deity, born as man, with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Why walk and speak this way? So that you may know how, to, how you ought to answer each person. It's not just human graciousness that we have. It's not just being polite with our own words, but, but we should extend and showcase the divine grace and the power that will allow you to proclaim and defend the gospel message towards other people. We should be gracious in our manner, but we should also be grace-speaking in our words. Where the best thing that we can do for anyone around us is to proclaim the gospel in a way that they could understand. And also with a personality that if they don't understand it, then they can ask questions. And also with our own understanding of the gospel that we can answer those questions. Where we can encourage others to follow us. That's what it actually means to be a disciple. A disciple is someone who follows Jesus. A disciplee, someone who's being the discipled, is someone who is following a disciple as that disciple follows Jesus. A discipler is showing someone what it means to follow Jesus. And what Paul is telling us is that we should walk in wisdom and we should speak in grace so that the message can go out and so that we can defend with ease the glorious works of the Lord. Paul gives this metaphor of salt. In the phrase, our, our word should be seasoned with salt, clearly referring to the care in choosing the right words. The church's speech is to be like salt, or more relevant, is to be winsome or common speech. We should be talking to people. Believers are to present the gospel in a winsome and understandable way so that outsiders can understand just what they're talking about. One of the ways that George Whitfield, the most powerful evangelist in the 1700s, one of the ways that he was so powerful outside of God's Spirit just guiding every step in his life is that people could actually understand his words. You know, that was faced in a time where, where pastors would stand 20 feet up in the, world, up in the air in this like altar-type figure and they wouldn't even speak down at people. They would speak 
over people's heads, both physically and metaphorically, where they were trying to be so holy and so understandable, it almost felt like the Catholic Church when they were speaking in Latin. Who's going to hear the gospel in Latin? No one speaks it anymore. So what Paul is saying, that for your neighbors around you, speak to them as a neighbor. For your children under you, speak to them like a child would understand. For those in your lives, speak to them with the precise and clear gospel so that when they come back at you or to you, you can give an account. You can encourage them with what it means. You can help them understand. This is why Christians aren't afraid of science or physics or politics or ethics or business or education or being around other people in the world. This is why we don't run and hide and build fortresses out deep far away in the woods where no one can touch us. This is why we can hopefully go into the world and say, this is the good news. Outside of everything else that's saying it's not. So Paul gives these final priorities to the church. He tells them to be devoted to prayer. He tells them to be devoted to proclamation. And then thirdly here, he says that they should be devoted to partnerships. The church should be devoted to partnerships. Here, Paul lists a lot of people in his life that he wants the readers to go tell these people information or to commend these people that they might come across or to just be aware of what God is doing in other people's lives. Paul didn't only win people to the Lord. He was a great friend maker. He was an apex networker. He was a gospel networker. Now, if my count's correct, there are more than 100 different Christians named associated with Paul in the book of Acts and his epistles. Think about it. That's, that's not that long of a book if you just take the New Testament as a whole and only use the things that Paul was involved with, but he mentions about 100 names. He's named with 26 different friends in Romans 16 alone. Now, it was customary in Paul's day to close a letter with a personal greeting. And of course, Paul's greetings were much more than social. They weren't just, you know, Merry Christmas and here's a postcard. But sometimes they were instructive and sometimes they were praiseworthy and sometimes they were filled with agony. But when we get behind the scenes and discover the drama of these men's lives, as they work with Paul, the list becomes very exciting. In doing so, he provides his audience with models of faithfulness. And, and calls others to follow such examples of the faith. The paragraph includes a reference, starting in verse 7 through verse 9, uh, has a reference to the messengers who will carry this letter to this church and a series of greetings from other associates who are acquainted, are, are acquainted with the Colossian church in verses 10 through 14. And together with his own greeting, some brief instructions and a final salutation in verses 15 through 18. Tychicus a dear brother to Paul, who had rendered reliable service to him. Paul is sending Tychicus for the express purpose of giving the Colossians the apostles' news and of impressing his teaching on the congregation in order to strengthen them. Onesimus, in verse 9, is the name person mentioned in this letter and also mentioned in Philemon. He's our faithful and dear brother. This is a friend that we all want to have, right? Where we could describe, like, what's the best way that you can describe your best friend? A faithful and dear brother or sister. He'll join Tychicus in informing others about Paul's well-being. This is the point of Onesimus being in there. Or in verses 10 through 11, three Jewish Christians send their greetings. They're traveling companions and fellow prisoners of Paul. 
Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, whom Paul had refused to take on the second missionary journey after his defection on the first journey, is clearly now on friendly terms. What, what joy this may fill the early church at that point, or the Christian church in this first century, of, of seeing the reconciliation of someone who had abandoned Paul, but then come back to him in friendship. The mere mention of Barnabas suggests that he was well known at this church, and this would have been deeply encouraging to him. We see this in our own lives, where someone might pass away, and they used to be a member of this church, and it's a joy for us, even though we haven't seen them possibly in 20 years or 10 years, it's a joy for us to know that they're finally home. And here Paul is reminding them of people who they would have known about for the glory of God's name going forward, or Jesus or Justus is otherwise unknown to us, but still Paul mentions them in this letter. These first three are the only Jewish Christians who have remained faithful fellow workers of Paul for the kingdom of God. Verses 12 through 14, three others who are Gentiles send their greetings. Epaphras especially mentioned. Paul stresses the the close relationship between his own ministry and that of Epaphras. As a native of this church, he had been their evangelist and had been engaged in the same struggle that Paul had had for this church's well-being. Epaphras wants them to make progress here and now and come to a fullness in Christ on the final day. Here also we see that Luke was a doctor. It's mainly on the basis of this verse which separates him from the Jewish Christians mentioned in verse 11 that that Luke is regarded as a Gentile Christian which helps us understand some of the context and the complexities of the things that he would write. And in 2 Timothy verse 4, Demas, we later read, is said to have left Paul for this world. So even in commending many Christians of their faith, we then see that some of them will depart, not only Paul, but their original faith altogether. In the last section of verses 15 and 18, we see the greetings that are sent to various people. The church is asked to convey Paul's greetings to the church at Laodicea and Nympha or at Laodicea, and Nympha is probably a woman which helps us understand other parts of other letters and what it means for women to be highly esteemed and to serve the church. This verse probably provides important evidence, or it does provide important evidence for the public reading of Paul's letters we see in verse 16, where they would receive this letter and they were instructed to read it out loud. This is actually why one of the, one of the priorities or principles of any local church ought to actually be to read the Bible out loud to each other. There is something wonderful and special that happens when you hear the word of the Lord. If there's anything that we can do on a Sunday morning besides prayer, it would just be for someone to get up and read the Bible. I've been at some churches where the pastor couldn't make it to church that day. They were snowed out, or they couldn't be there, or they wound up sick. And it wasn't anything less of a church service than for one of the other elders or for one of the other members just to get up and read a long passage of Scripture. Blessed be the name of the Lord when His name is spoken over His people. We see that in verse 16, that this so-called heresy that was threatening the whole area, it would have been helpful for these Laodiceans and these Colossians to know Paul's response as he sends this letter to the church, and they should have heard about it in mass and hear from it in mass. Archippus, in verse 17, was a member of Philemon's household, probably Philemon's son, who devoted himself to the service of the gospel. So it helps this church understand the context of what all is around them. 
And finally, in verse 18, having finished dictating this, Paul takes up his own pen, adds his own personal greeting on, with his own handwriting, and he tells them to remember my chains. And an appeal for continued prayer, but also his eternal value. Not only is he in chains, which ought to encourage them to go forward because someone who is being oppressed by the government is still loving them for the sake of the advancement of the gospel, but also he's reminding them that he is enchained to his master, the Lord Jesus Christ. And though they receive this letter from him, they will be with him someday, forever and ever. And he ends it as he likely does, with grace be with you all. So as we come to the close of our time together in the book of Colossians, we most likely will remember the unique teachings that Paul gives. How a wife ought to act, how a husband ought to act, how kids ought to behave, how this thing is sort of like our church or pretty different than our church. But what I want us to be reminded of is that what Paul is truly striving at is that the outcome of our lives or the working out of our lives is fundamentally fixated on and planted in and firmly enriched in the foundation of the preeminence in Jesus Christ above everything, comparable to nothing. Brooke and I went to the Redburn Farm yesterday. Maybe some of you have gone there where it's just a barn with, you know, sheep that you can feed and stuff that you can find. It's adorable. And there's lots of things that you go, man, I wouldn't normally buy that, but this feels Christmassy and festive, so I'll buy it. There are these things that you can make a fire, like with wood, and then you throw pieces inside of it, and it makes the fire smell like better fire. Right? And you can buy them for a lot of money, and, it, and they're cool. We've, we've had them in our own house where you're like, wow, that actually, does, like at first it was just a fire, but now it's a real fire. And what Paul is trying to combat is that we will be tempted to think that we can live a life however we want and just add in bits and pieces of Jesus to make it seem sweeter or smell sweeter. Or I can live as a fifth grader, but if I have a little bit of Jesus in my life, then I can be a great fifth grader. Or I can be a businessman, but if I open up my business every day with prayer, then my business is going to make a ton of money. Or maybe I can just pray out loud in front of people and then they'll feel like I'm a good person. Paul is saying, don't just throw chips in, but be consumed with the fire. Be consumed with the light. Be entrenched with the glory and the manifestation of Jesus. Remember Paul in his chains and remember the bondage that our sins placed us in. And remember the keys that open these chains in our lives. Worship that, Paul says. Be consumed with that. If we have a right picture of who Jesus is, then everything else just seems so blah. And Paul is saying, remember who Jesus is, and grace be with you all. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning amazed and thankful that you have spoken through Paul to us, that you have been encouraging to Paul and now to us by the truths and testimonies of your Son. We pray that we would be a church who partners rightly with other Christians, that we would encourage good and godly partnerships. We pray that we would be a church that proclaims your gospel with our steps and with our words. We pray that we would be a church that prays 
that depends on you, that finds refuge in you, that turns everything over to you for our joy and for your glory. God, we pray that you would lift up your Son and may we see him for who he is. May we exalt his name forever. And may we be entranced by his glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.